millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we're back. That's right, my Kyoto's Delicious Words Sandwich is back with our cool-ass theme song, a weird concept in your pal old Matty. Forgive my hiatus. It shall be explained and we shall improve, my friends. Oh, the places we've gone, the sandwiches we've eaten, the absurdity we've glossed over. Here we are. It's only episode five and I feel we've traveled to hell and back together, my Kyoto's. We began our journey, if you recall, all those many months ago. Humbly, I was just your old pal, old Maddie, meeting you for the first time with a cool rock intro and a dream to eat books. Hell, we started out with but an appetizer. Oh, the places you'll go by Dr. Seuss. It was a promising dipping of the toes into the wide, stormy oceans of the podcast craft, teasing a literary feast to come, worthy of a nerd's Valhalla. So, Marvel's Asgard, I suppose. Ho! Then what happened? Ah, that's right, I died. Journeying up to investigate that mysterious snow leopard used as symbolism by Papa Hemingway to convey human nature's pointless and inevitably doomed ambitions, I died amongst the peak of Mount Kilimanjaro itself. I will neither confirm nor deny that I was slain by a yeti. However, little did I know how seriously librarians take their overdue library books. I thought they were just going to bill my corpse, but instead they summoned my body and spirit in a Roman ritual and intertwined them once more to bring me back to life before them. I was grateful, I remember, to the wise husks for about half a second before I realised that once they took back the Paris Hilton biography, which I'd booked out by mistake, and you can't prove otherwise, they had no qualms about killing me again and promptly locked me inside the endless catacombs under the Brisbane State Library, filled with knights' tombs, labyrinthian tunnels, and, thanks to me, demons. Kinda weird if you think about it for half a second, geographically. Historically, though, at least the last part makes sense. If you remember, I summoned Brederick for a companion, but he only proved an enemy in eventual sustenance. As he ate my hand, so I ate him. But even demon meat wasn't enough to sustain me through my lost trials, and so I consumed many a delicious word sandwich, converting the snows of Kilimanjaro by Ernest Hemingway the Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, Journey to the Centre of the Earth by Jules Verne, and The Sun Also Rises by Hemingway again, because he is clearly my favourite, and I am obsessed. But in a healthy way, I think. And please don't prove otherwise. All of these proved delicious and helpful in guiding my way out of the catacombs, soon having me seduce a volcano to be shot out from the Earth's bowels back onto the surface like the charming vomit I am. My adventure turned out to be the gift I kept on giving, when instead of lush Italian vineyards like in Verne's story, I was welcomed by a gun-toting murder bear, who showed me no quarter! Our battle was legendary, yet tragically this is but a literature podcast, so this awesome bear fight was immediately over budget. The spark notes are I brought a knife to a gunfight, terribly wounded in the process, losing my other hand, but not before severing the bear's own paws and stitching them to my own stubs. The bear, who used an M16 like an idiot, now couldn't fire it, much less unjam it, with the stubs I nobly bequeathed in vengeful turn. And here I am, running through the forest pursued by a gun-toting bear with no hands who will probably drop the gun and just try to eat me normally, I'm guessing. Last I checked, the bear had mounted a wooden unicycle to make up for the lost all-four-legged run. Still very much in danger, I fear. How are you? I am too panicked to hear about it, but I just wanted to ask, Kiotis. I hope wherever you are, you are well. I have gained some ground, which is good, but I found myself in front of a great wall of stone that seems to encircle the rather large centre of this island. It's a good thing King Kong wasn't based on a novel, or I'd think I'd found that ominous-ass wall that bars Kong from the people of Skull Island. Quick side note, have you seen the original King Kong film from 1933? 
The romance between the leads is so horribly dated and terribly sexist that when I saw it in a museum theatre, the audience laughed out loud at how little sense it made. And frankly, it was a delight in an audience setting. But please do not take it seriously, dear God. Honestly, King Kong, who is way more mindless beast than misunderstood creature, is still probably the most respectable soul in the whole damn film. Also, extra side note, I recently read of a bear called The Boss in Canada, who walks along railroad tracks and lives to have mad sexual relations and eat things, including black bears, which is pretty damn scary, but kind of like intimidatingly awesome. Fun fact though, he's very chill around humans, which is very interesting. But my favorite fact about him, and this is why I'm bringing him up, is he got hit by a train, shrugged it off, and still walks along railroad tracks like it's no one's business without any kind of fear or self-doubt. Now that is a ballsy-ass bear. Moving on. When it comes to Lost World stories like King Kong, the Genesis and my personal literary favorite has to be King Solomon's Mines. You guessed it, as the title of this episode gave it away. Today, our delicious word sandwich is the OG Indiana Jones adventure starring Alan Quatermain and H. Ryder Haggard's fabulous and truly epic adventure, King Solomon's Mines. Now, excuse me, Kiotis, my cat just sneezed. Bless you, Flinny. Oh, bless that little scamp. I love him. I wish he stopped jumping at my tailor-made coat. As you'd imagine, tailor-made coats aren't really growing on these trees on this deserted forest. Question, Kiotis. Does it count as a plot twist if everyone knew it was coming? Forgive me, Kiotis. Flinny's got the zooms and he's going to and fro. Next thing I know, he's going to come back with a fully grown stag between his teeth. Good work, Flinny. Question, Kiotis. Does it count as a plot twist if everyone knew it was coming? Or is it just simple plot progression? However you see it, lo and behold, just as the bear rollocks over yonder hill, the great stone wall before me has parted at a seam to reveal an entry into what may just be a secret African society. No, it's not Wakanda. There are too many books already. I am not including comics. I'm falling behind as it is, dear friends. Anyway, it turns out having bear paws for hands is quite an honoured oddity round these parts, and while they clearly know I am but a fool who got lucky and creative, They enjoyed the yarn I just spun for you and decided I earned a break, giving me food, shelter, and a complex operation using liquid diamond technology, think Terminator 2 but sparkly glowy, to sink my bare paws more elegantly with my body and soul. However, I found out after dinner that just getting new human hands was an option, but no longer. So that's fun to know. After dinner, for they were so kind, I thought I'd bring up King Solomon's mines and see if that kindness would extend to a few plump diamonds, because after journeying across mountains, through ancient tombs, and into secret civilizations, I'd be damned if I wasn't going to get some treasure out of it. They went silent, and I thought I had overstayed my welcome, not only in their home, but in the land of the living. Then they asked if I knew the tale of King Solomon's mines, and if I could tell it to them. Naturally, I said I could, and would and would also repay their kindness with a delicious word sandwich that I shall conjure from the tail. And thus it was, we waited for the damn yeast to rise yet again, and I pulled a copy of the New Yorker out of my... Well, never mind where I keep them. Also, side note, I am sick and tired of treasure hunting stories not ending with the treasure hunters getting the full treasure on which they find. The one example I can think of when the treasure hunters find the treasure hole and there's no complications that takes it away from them at the last minute in which they grab a handful and that's all you have to be satisfied with other than the damn friendship and love they found along the way is National Treasure 1. And you know what Nicolas Cage does? He is offered 10% by the official authorities who recover the treasure and he says, oh, it's too much. And he takes 1%, which he then has to split with Justin Bartha, which he then has to split his half percent yet again with Diane Kruger, who he's just wed I think and then in National Treasure 2 they separate and he's poor he found an endless treasure of wealth which he by his own admission said was too much to ever have completely and he's poor by the sequel because he willingly took the equivalent of a handful when he found the whole damn thing without complication by the end of the adventure It maddens me, it's my least favourite cliché, I hate it so much. Moving on, we're going into the tradition of, instead of reading the news of literature, 
because if you want that news, you can look it up yourself. I'm done reading articles to you. I thought we'd have some nice appetizers on the reg. What I'm talking about, of course, is reviewing the short stories in the New Yorker, because as far as I know, no one else is doing it, and I think it's fun. The short story I read recently was one called All Will Be Well by Yi Yun Li. Told in the first person, we are invited into the mind of a former teacher turned writer who is addicted to going to the salon. This is not for some obsession with vanity, rather with the shepherd of that vanity, her hairdresser Lily, and all the interesting tragedies and comedies she tells. This is one of those short stories that, in a way, kind of cheats because it's several stories within a story. However, like the snows of Kilimanjaro, when a writer can seamlessly and concisely implant these stories into their shorts, it is clear the rules were broken because the writer's a master that can break them. When I tried writing a story within a short story myself, it quickly became a novella, if not just two completely separate short stories. But enough condemning of my own budding writing career. Let us judge another writer's career, because they may have been published in The New Yorker, but I have a podcast. Interestingly, the first thing we learn about this mind we're in is that it prefers to be seen as anonymous, to have control over how others perceive her as much as her own perception of herself. Pretty much every detail she tells Lily is a lie, despite becoming such a regular that she never had to book nor wait in line at the salon, and if she hasn't come in a while, her absence is noted by this practitioner. This is mainly a story about the moment-to-moment mindset of our protagonist, comparing her life in the world of Lily and the salon to the reality of her life outside of it. In the life outside, she has had two children and a frustrated former teaching career, who, in her time, has said some great lines to some impertinent students with bad tastes in books. As is the case with these stories that present piece by piece the makings of a character's mind and ultimate life, by the end you are left with, if all will be indeed well, a complete and impactful whole picture of that person and a time in their existence. Unfortunately, and this is just on my personal reading, I couldn't quite get a clear idea of what this picture was meant to be, how I was encouraged to feel, or what it was all really meant to mean. The story is well written, and there are some fantastic lines throughout, but as the pieces form and fall, I was never quite sure what the writer thematically was trying to convey until one of these lines presented itself at its end which became frustrating as you read what soon feels like a series of unrelated musings and anecdotes waiting, even relying, on that final declaration for you to have any kind of idea what it was all meant to be about. And that feels like you're copping out because you're waiting for the answer to be given to you given to you plain rather than figuring it out yourself along with the characters and the writer themselves. It's like seeing the tip of the iceberg, diving down for more only to find nothing underneath. I never want to say there isn't anything underneath, but I just couldn't see it. What these anecdotes do resolve around is the central story of one of Lily's long-lost loves, of how when she was 16 in Vietnam, she fell in love with the boy next door who loved her too, and all seemed to be well. But due to a small war that is now a footnote in history between the Chinese and the Vietnamese, she had to move away with her family. The boy wept and waited for three days and three nights in front of Lily's old house, pining for her return, not eating, not drinking, not sleeping. Apparently this is super romantic. I found it a little pathetic. The story goes on, disjointed between other anecdotes and human touches leading back into the love story, where modern day Lily calls her lost love after she receives a letter from him. True to form, he is too overcome with tears to talk on the phone, so she talks with every other member of his new family. Here's where I found it very strange, and frankly the most interesting, but the story is quick to gloss over this once it gives you the deets. It's revealed that he talks about her all the time, to his wife and three children, keeps a photo of Lily on their nightstand where he and his new wife sleep, and even when this man's wife is talking to Lily, she states that she is the most beautiful woman that she has ever known. How the marriage works with this delusional maniac never letting go of what is quite obviously a romanticized ideal he has built up in his mind from when he was 16? I don't know. Let me tell you. When it comes to that marriage, I wouldn't bet that all will be well. Throughout all this, Lily keeps insisting that our writer should sell this as a movie idea, or write it as a romantic novel, both prospects being declined by a protagonist flat. In my view, this is her not letting her external life invade the sanctity of her salon, and she resents Lily for actively trying to rip her external life into her sanctum. Another anecdote starts which leads to the end all about not disappointing one with one's writing if you never start. One thing I will say is that by story's end, all of the tangents raised are resolved. 
but it's all so spread out and scattered that despite the strong lines and naturalistic dialogue, I just couldn't be moved or gripped by it deeply. There was one declaration, as the story was very good for declarations, that has stuck with me since reading this story, and it is one that I am keeping close to my chest as I go through life. It is, read a story for what it is, not for what you want it to be. I have friends who go into movies, especially sequels, who come out complaining that it wasn't this, this sequel that they had already more or less planned out in their mind, and the fact that that the movie that they watched didn't succeed to that has completely distorted their opinion of it. In this story, an impertinent student insults Tolstoy for not being the reality that they see it in their day-to-day life. And, of course, the teacher rightly condemns this student for insulting the great Tolstoy with, read a story for what it is, not what you want it to be. Excellent, excellent advice. Excellent writing. However, now this is the fun time where we decide on our own fun-on-a-bun rating system. Like my favourite critic of all time, Roger Ebert, we're going to rate these stories right, with an out-of-four system, being poor, okay, good, and excellent. This removes the ambiguity of that tetchy one-to-five system, removing the need to try and find out what makes a perfect story, or what makes an instant classic, and more simply analyses the story for what it is, not what we want it to be and how well it achieves what a great story sets out to do, what it, as a story, sets out to do. And thus, being out of four, it is more than appropriate to rate our stories out of the four musketeers, for there is no force better than those four rascals together. Alas, this story must make do with Porthos and Athos fighting for it alone. To speak plain, I rate All Will Be Well by Yigon Lee, two musketeers out of four. Remember, you can judge for yourself on the New Yorker website, with the story linked in the show notes, Kiotis. The yeast had just about risen, and my new friends were getting anxious for King Solomon's mines. So it was high time to give them what we all need every now and then. Some advice from Papa. Take it away, Hemingway. Cue the music! Yeah, we cue the music now. A good writer should know as near everything as possible. Naturally, he will not. Great enough writer seems to be born with knowledge, but he really is not. He has only been born with the ability to learn in a quicker ratio to the passage of time than other men, without conscious application, with an intelligence to accept or reject what is already presented as knowledge. There are some things which cannot be learned quickly, and time, which is all we have, must be paid heavily for their acquiring. They are the very simplest things, and because it takes a man's life to know them, The little new that each man gets from life is very costly, and the only heritage he has to leave. Every novel which is truly written contributes to the total knowledge which is there at the disposal of the next writer who comes. But the next writer must pay, always, a certain nominal percentage and experience to be able to understand and assimilate what is available as his birthright, and what he must, in turn, take his departure from. Now, Kiotis... The reason I chose that particular quote is not only because it is suitable to how every writer must, like Alan Quatermain, find the treasure left behind, and, like King Solomon, must in turn leave treasure for future generations, but also because of the remark about time, and, of course, writing from the heart, writing truly, and how some things must be paid heavily in time, which is all we have, to learn these things. I shan't dwell too much on this, but it has become wisely clear that this show, Delicious Word Sandwich, must move to monthly releases, both for my own sanity and for the sake of the quality of this show. I hope, with this extra time, I will be able to learn and master what I need to produce the best goddamn podcast that ever scuttled through your ears, Kyoptiz. I make no excuses, nor make any apologies. I am simply grateful to you for returning after that unexpected hiatus. It's because of you that your pal old Maddie can make sense of a world where I eat sandwiches made out of literature, get killed and resurrected by librarians, escape from demon-infested tombs into islands of gun-toting bears and secret kingdoms. Now onwards! Where were we? Oh yes, I just recited a Hemingway quote to my new friends, and have since been giving a three-hour lecture on the life and times of Ernest Hemingway, so they treat that quote with respect. But with the lecture done, almost everything else, the yeast has finally arisen, we can get started on the bread. The Foundations of King Solomon's Mines by Sir Henry Ryder 
Haggard. I should note, Keoptes, that Sir Henry Ryder Haggard, he is a writer that is a testament to the power of writing earnestly from the heart, and by doing so, that no matter how adventurous or pulpy your story might be, it can pack real thematic punch, and what I consider the most important in any work of art, heart. Here's the bread, the biography of H. Ryder Haggard. H. Ryder Haggard was born in 1856 and he died in 1925. He was an English novelist and Victorian writer of the African frontier adventure novels King Solomon's Mines and the sequels of the Alan Quatermain series. And he was the penultimate pioneer of the lost world literary genre. This Kyotis is who we have to thank for Indiana Jones, who himself is a cross of Alan Quatermain, Sam Spade and Robin Hood. And when it comes to this fella's complete works, Wikipedia had to have a whole separate page just for his published works, aside from his biography, which is one way to gloat over me, I guess. More like H. Ruder Haggard. I mean, the madman wrote 55 novels alone, and a bunch of non-fiction, and I don't even want to know what else. What a guy. He was the eighth of ten children to father William Mayerbaum Ryder Haggard, a barrister, and his wife, poet and daughter of a merchant in the East Indian Trading Company, Ella Dovington. I hope, unlike in the Pirates of the Caribbean series, the East Indian Trading Company's Ella Dovington was no villain. One thing I did find strange about Ella Dovington, and no, it's not being a villain of the Pirates of the Caribbean series, is that looking her up, it listed almost that her being the daughter of someone was more or less listed as a profession. We can see whose path our hero followed, quite rightly too, as who really wants to be a barrister. To make it clear, he followed the path of his mother, the poet not the lawyer. Ugh. Sorry, not sorry to all the lawyers out there. Although I will say, good job. You've come a long way. But damn, man. Just so much reading. Ugh. Anyway, back to our literature podcast. Haggard attended the Ipswich Grammar School. No, not that Ipswich, Australians. And also received tutoring at home, as he was most prone to daydreaming, which I think was a worthwhile investment, and we should leave him to it. But rather than letting Haggard get two Wikipedia pages devoted to his work, he was offered by his father to Sir Henry Bulwer, then Lieutenant Governor of Natal, for secretarial service and to assist in the running of his natal estate. Once there, for a time he accompanied, here's a mouthful of a name, Sir Theophilus Shepstone into the Transvaal, where Zulus, Boers, and Britons fought for supremacy. Indeed, Haggard was present in Pretoria, to read the British annexation of the Boer Republic of the Transvaal because the governor had lost his voice. Mysteriously lost his voice, if you ask me. If you're wondering about my own croaky voice, I have recently recovered from sickness, and reading out these essays doesn't do my voice any favours, which, on other nights where Cluedo the interactive game is playing, I, as Detective Honey, have to corral a large group of deputies over swinging jazz music and general pandemonium. So, forgive my croaky voice. It's taken a few hits. In 1878, H. Ryder Haggard became Registrar of the High Court in the Transvaal, an area to become part of South Africa. This period of his life would provide the initial inspiration and material for his future novels. In 1880, Haggard married Englishwoman Mariana Luisa Margitsen. Their first child was a boy, Jack. Haggard would name three of his daughters after heroines in his books which makes me feel a lot better about naming my cat after my own story's hero. The British defeat at Mujibar in 1881 ended with the Transvaal being gifted back to the Dutch by the British, so the Haggards returned to England to live in Ditchingham, Norfolk. Unfortunately, Haggard studied law and was called to the bar in 1884 in London. The fool. Though his heart was not in it, called it, and he started to write. Between Verne and Haggard, I'm starting to think that we writers should stop trying to sell our souls to the wrong kind of bar, and just do our thing like the magical vagrants we are, at the right kind of bar. Haggard's first book was Setewayo and His White Numbers, published 1882, a denunciation of British South African policy that was not received well, at least at the time. I give him props for challenging what was a very posh tyranny. He would next publish Dawn, 1884, to slightly better reception, enough for him to find encouragement to continue with the semi-autobiographical The Witch's Head, 1885, which would be the starting point for him to write from the heart. This is why we needed Papa Hemingway to contribute to the total knowledge, as now we should all know from the beginning that we must simply write earnestly, pun intended, from the heart. Now here comes my favourite bit. 
and why I must insist you let me continue gambling on random things foppishly just because I like the word wager. Why, before I died, I won a wager with a shop assistant that I could outrun him holding the till. I wonder if that warrant reigns posthumously. Back to the story, Kiotis. Stop distracting me. With the release of Robert Louis Stevenson's novel, Treasure Island, in 1885, one of Haggard's brothers wagered that Haggard could at least write something as good, and so it is said that he wrote King Solomon's Mines in six weeks to win that bet, and to win an everlasting legacy. Imagine if he knew at the time that old Matty himself would transform his book into a sandwich. Although he'd probably be more interested in the distribution, and you know, the internet. Well, old Matty aside, the book was received with great critical acclaim, and he realised he had finally come into his milieu. She, 1887, an epic lost world adventure introducing Haggard's other iconic character, the near-immortal Queen Aisha, also known as the almighty She Who Must Be Obeyed, followed. Aisha became a household name, to whom Freud would refer to in the in the interpretation of dreams, and Young would also mention. Financially secure and yucking it up at Ditchingham with his family, Haggard would spend his days as a gentleman farmer and dictate his stories to his secretary in his study. Too lofty was he to put pen to paper himself. Hmm? Do not agree with this style, H. Ryder Haggard. His Viking romance, Eric Bright Eyes, 1891, is dedicated to Victoria, Empress Frederick of Germany, which I suspect is a joke I do not get. Haggard would also travel extensively through Europe, the Americas, Egypt, and South Africa. While in Mexico in 1891, Haggard's only son and progeny died suddenly in London. It broke Haggard's heart, and he would for years suffer grief and guilt at this loss. Oh, well now I feel a right turd for being jealous and condescending of him. Update, Quixotes. I am getting some prime glares from this tribe, and rightly so. I should probably not be jealous of literary legends, at least not openly. Though heartbroken, he persevered and continued to write many a fine story, while rubbing shoulders with the prime of literary circles and politicians, including Theodore Roosevelt, who obviously liked these stories, and wrote some books about agriculture which, sue me, I have not read. Side note, Kyotis, recently I saw the film The Man Who Would Be King, based on a story by Rudyard Kipling. Some of you who are devout listeners to our channel, that's not canon, may have caught your pal Old Matty fighting the good fight on behalf of Peter Pan against Kipling's other famous story, The Jungle Book, wrapped by Castology's Patrick Shearer. You'd find it most strange then, considering the indictment I pronounced against the ruddy yard about its imperialism, that I would willfully watch this film based on another very imperialist story by Rudyard Kipling, also known as Ruddy Yard. That's my nickname for him. We're on the best of terms. Not really. I don't like imperialists. Well, one reason I watched this story is that it was a really well-told story, and Roger Ebert himself said it was the prime of escapism, which is kind of my jam. Two, I retract nothing I said about Kipling that day. The Man Who Would Be King, like The Jungle Book, is an imperialist story about British superiority over native cultures and the folly inherent, if not tragedy, in those cultures ever mixing by Kipling's point of view. Haggard, you will notice, writes in similar settings on similar topics, and indeed, Nye comes from a similar background. Yet, unlike that Kipling, who I recognise as a master of storytelling, but do not necessarily enjoy, I will heartily and actively enjoy Haggard's stories and characters. For the sake of openness, his stories do reflect some preconceptions of British colonialism. Often, he is most sympathetic to native Africans and Zulu culture, which he tries to portray to the best of his understanding from personal experience. His exotic adventures carry themes of spiritualism and antiquity that resonate with his imperial audience, while respecting the cultures in which his stories are set, something that Kipling does not do to such great effect. Haggard was to initiate many of the now common themes of the lost civilization and lost continent genre, ancient magic and curses, secret chambers, and globe-trotting treasure hunts. His protagonists are usually European, though many of his heroes are African, such as Ignosi, the rightful king of Kukwanaland in King Solomon's Mines. In 1919, Haggard was made a knight commander of the Order of the British Empire, which, no matter your views on imperialism, is a freaking cool title. My new friends here don't seem to agree, though. Boy, are they cross. H. Ryder Haggard died in a London nursing home at 3 Devonshire Terrace on 14 May 1925. One of Haggard's daughters, L. R. Haggard, 
because apparently the Haggards hate having their first name, you know, spelled out. It has to be a goddamn letter. I digress. Wrote a memoir of him, The Cloak That I Left, in 1951. Haggard's own autobiography, The Days of My Life, in two volumes was published in 1926, which I shall race you to the library for, my kiltis. And here is a message from the man himself about the wonders of reading to close off our bread segment. And oh, you whose eyes shall fall upon these pages, see, they have been translated, and they have been printed, and here they lie before you, an undiscovered land wherein you are free to travel. H. Ryder Haggard, written in his novel Cleopatra, published 1889. For bread, summarizing this rollicking, tragic, and busy, busy history between farming of ancient civilizations, English patriotism, and, you know, actual farming, I have finally settled on the traditional English cottage loaf, as it is airy and dreamy like the daydreaming haggard, difficult like his life, farming and career, but devoted to being bred in all its chaos, like his devotion to writing, and England, I suppose. Plus, history, you know. Perhaps as I get better at this, I might find some suitable mix between African styles of creating bread and English traditional bread. But until now, English cottage loaf for our treasure hunting English patriot, H. Ryder Haggard. And now, on to the meat. Allow me to spin you the yarn that is King Solomon's Mines. The moment you've all been waiting for, my friends, both here and afar. Although if you can hear me from afar, as soon as I figure out the coordinates to this island, get me out of here, please. We open with adventurer and big game hunter Alan Quatermain, who has grown to prefer Africa over life in England. He is asked by two Englishmen, Sir Henry Curtis and his friend Captain Good, to assist the pair in finding Sir Henry's brother. Last seen headed north into Africa's uncharted interior in search of the famous King Solomon's Mines. Quatermain, known for his adventures in Africa, just so happens to have a map that claims to lead to the mine. But he has never taken the map to be authentic, because why would you? Quatermain accepts the job, however, because he understands he's lived life longer than most of the other men in his profession, and can afford to take on fool's errands. I suspect he's hella bored. He strikes a deal. He'll lead the expedition for a share of the treasure, or, if he's killed along the way, a stipend for his son. On this note, he seems very occupied with doing right by his son back in England, surely through his own death by providing a stipend after the fact, and I suspect that this was the result he was banking on, being too proud to kill himself and too formidable to be killed by his own normal routine. In short, like every pure swashbuckler in essence, Quartermain has a death wish. Quartermain assembles a ragtag team of surprisingly reliable misfits, including himself, Good, Curtis, and Hottentot Ventvogel, famous for his tracking abilities, and the mysterious Umbopa, a hunter who claims to be Zulu. Quartermain initially distrusts Umbopa, due to the man's attitude and presence which seems to indicate he's not what he claims to be. But Quartermain relents. Whatever could the fellow be hiding? The party reaches the edge of the desert, one of the labourers is killed by a wounded elephant. That sounds unusual, but it was really a terrible tragedy. Short story is the labourer, a boy by the name of Kiva, and Captain Good were being chased by the enraged wounded elephant. Good refused to hunt in appropriate attire, wearing foppish English clothes, and was greatly encumbered, eventually falling to the huge buck's mercy. Kiva, seeing this, threw himself into the fray, drawing the elephant's attention to huge consequence. I quote, with a scream of pain, the brute seized the poor Zulu, hurled him to the earth, and placing his huge foot onto his body about the middle, twined his trunk round his upper part, and tore him in two. That's some intensity right there. They avenge the Zulu, which in itself is a tragedy, as they should not have been hunting the elephant in the first place. Don't mess with elephants is the moral of this story, and certainly don't hunt them. Their next great challenge is the walk across the desert itself, wherein they almost die of thirst, finally reaching an oasis indicated on Quartermain's map. Then they arrive at Solomon Berg, a mountain range with a very convenient name. Atop one of the peaks, they enter a cave and find the frozen body of José Silvestre, the Portuguese explorer responsible for Quartermain's map. 
Van Vogel dies overnight, unfortunately, and they leave his body in the cave to keep Jose Silvestre company. Isn't that cute? Not really. Grizzly ass story. Good opening. The kindly tribe that has taken me in this night seem very ecstatic at this part of the story. I think they're excited for what is to come. The other side of the mountain is discovered to be full of game and foliage, so the men pause to hunt and refresh themselves in a stream. The next morning, Captain Good is confronted by a group of native hunters. Quatermain notices the similarities between these hunters and Umbopa. The Kokwana warriors are about to kill the captain, at which point he fidgets with his false teeth. Seeing this alarms the native warriors, who run in fear, understandably not used to people being able to pull out their teeth, I guess. The explorers decide to play the part of sorcerer gods, from that point on as a protection, which, you know, can only go well. They totally luck out with a lunar eclipse at one stage. In fact, this whole story of King Solomon's Mines is one whole trope. That is, that's so crazy, it might just work. Soon, there includes an episode where the men are brought before the king of the local natives, King Twala, the one-eyed and terrible. King Twala ruthlessly rules his people. He claimed the throne by killing his brother and casting his wife and infant son Ignosi into the desert, both thought dead as men hate the unfortunate. In this area, it is said. All marks to be the rightful king have a snake tattoo coiled around their abdomen, it should be said. Yeah, no, what a bastard, my friends. They've all gone quiet, you see. Silent in fear from this terrible, terrible king. King Twala's chief advisor is an undying old witch named Gagool, who has the most vivid and grotesque of descriptions that I simply must admire. I quote, I observed the wizened monkey-like figure creeping up from the shadow of the hut. It crept on all fours, but when it reached the place where the king sat, it rose upon its feet, and throwing the furry covering off its face, revealed a most extraordinary and weird countenance. It was, apparently, that of a woman of great age, so shrunken that in size it was no larger than that of a year-old child, and was made up of a collection of deep yellow wrinkles. Set in the wrinkles was a sunken slit that represented the mouth, beneath which the chin curved outwards to a point. There was no nose to speak of. Indeed, the whole countenance might have been taken of that of a sun-dried corpse, had it not been for a pair of large black eyes, still full of fire and intelligence, which gleamed and played under the snow-white eyebrows, and the projecting parchment-coloured skull, like jewels in a charnel house. As for the skull itself, it was perfectly bare and yellow in hue, while its wrinkled scalp moved and contracted like the hood of a cobra. My god, not only can you see her with that description, but you can feel her presence and it makes me shudder, oh boy. She speaks with a thin, piercing voice and is the true evil of the story. I must say, growing up and to this day, I think this story should be adapted again for film just so someone can bring Gagool to life completely. She is scary and cunning and ultimately fascinating. She also has it out for old Maddie with the line, Listen, all things that live and must die. Listen, all dead things that must live again, again to die. I just got back to life, Gagool. Give me a chance. Gagool supports the king's rule through witch hunts, purges, and an overall enthusiasm for murder as his chief inquisitor and she targets Umbopa for this sort of treatment. Umbopa then reveals his secret, a coiled snake tattooed about his waist. He is, in fact, Ignosi, and the rightful king. The Englishmen quickly take Ignosi's side, using their knowledge of a lunar eclipse as proof of Ignosi's legitimacy and their own divinity. When rebellion breaks out, a furious civil war ensues. No, not like the one in Wakanda. Okay, a little like the one in Wakanda. Though the rebels are outnumbered, through their knowledge of tactics and an ability to rally under the rightful king, they win with the help of the English explorers, and Sir Henry himself decapitates King Twala in a duel. Side note, Sir Henry becomes a Siegfriedian war machine in the Civil War, completely abandoning all English weaponry and becoming a warrior in the purest and most unstoppable sense. Absolute berserker. Battle axe, blonde beard, blonde lush locks. What a guy! The explorers also capture Gagool, 
who, in my opinion, has done all she's done so that she may thrive in a community that would otherwise have despised her. Indeed, small, like, thematic note before I delve into it deeper later, Gagul is a woman with knowledge, and thus she is vilified, whereas all of the other women in the story, unfortunately, are more nurturers and more, to be frank, subservient. It's not the best aspect of the story, but all the more reason for this story to be remade with an emphasis on Gagul, with her motivations being more explored, so she's not just a grotesque apparition of evil, but she is a cunning and ancient force that is woman. She is forced to lead the men to King Solomon's mines, to a treasure room known as the Place of Death, which should have tipped them off. Instead, they are blinded by a room full of gold, diamonds, and ivory. So excited, while the men are gathering treasure, Gagul slips from their grasp and sneaks out, initiating the large stone door to close behind her, intending to trap the men inside. However, on her way out, she is caught in a scuffle with Fulata, one of those women I mentioned, and this woman in particular has grown attached to Captain Good while nursing him back from sickness. Classic farewell to arms. And by the way, farewell to her arms as Gugul stabs Fulata, but the brave woman holds on to the witch who fights like a wildcat until finally breaking free, but oh too late. As she tosses Fulata to the ground, she writhes like a snake under the closing stone door, all 30 tons of it, crushing her, catching her body against the rock below with a shriek upon shriek, and then a long, sickening crunch. Even in death, Gagul's description steals the show. Farewell, Gagul. Trapped inside the room, with their food and water supplies dwindling, the men prepare to die. In this moment, as they wait to starve among the room of gold and diamond, I like to think they ponder the uselessness of diamonds compared to real treasures, like water and a warm meal. My favourite thing about this part is the next chapter is titled, We Abandoned Hope. Story over then? No! After a few days, though, they find an escape route and leave the treasure room with their pockets full of diamonds. Once again, we see a treasure tale in which our heroes never get the full claim of the treasure they've discovered. The explorers say their goodbyes to Ignosi. At first, the great Ignosi is upset that his friends want to leave, saying they could live happily in his kingdom, and he is even angered that they value the diamonds more than him. However, they explain that they are called homeward as Ignosi was called back home. Ignosi calls them his brothers, and promises that they will be remembered as heroes, and the Englishmen make their way toward home. Here we see a moment that is never in a Kipling book, in which the two cultures respect each other, but not out of fear, only friendship. But, like in a Kipling book, Haggard insists that never should the two cultures be mixed on a permanent basis, and they should always be separated, unfortunately. Following a different route than before, they find Sir Henry's brother at an oasis with a broken leg, alive and well with his buddy Jim in a mighty cosy hut built for themselves, hunting game for food and wearing the hides like a, and I quote, a second Robinson Crusoe. Hmm. Well, me being trapped on this island, I guess that makes old Maddie the third? Anyway, they spend the night sharing their stories and agreeing as friends to share the diamonds. No double crossing here. They've all earned their treasure and they know it. They all eventually make their way out of the wilderness and then back to England, wealthy beyond their dreams. All's well and ends well, all's well, Orson Wells. Orson Wells? Back to the story. It's good to see that they got the treasure they needed out of it, even if it wasn't the whole damn treasure room. But I guess I guess that's also a sacred room to the Kukwana land. So, good anti-colonialism point that they didn't get the whole room. So that's a win. Though the book originally struggled to find a publisher, when it finally did get published, the book quickly became a success. It was the year's bestseller, and the publisher struggled to print enough copies to meet the public's demand. Now that's pretty damn nice. King Solomon's Minds gave birth to a genre now referred to as the Lost World genre, which applies to a subgenre of science fiction and fantasy where characters meet civilizations that are stuck out of time or place. Personally, it's one of my favourite genres when done well, which is harder than most think. Other writers quickly wrote their own Lost World stories, including Edgar Rice Burroughs, The Land That Time Forgot, Arthur Conan Doyle, The Lost World, and, of course, Rudyard Kipling, The Man Who Would Be King. You will notice that many of these stories present views towards colonialism, that now are considered racist, though Haggard's characters are much less prejudiced than others within the genre. It's not innocent, but it's respectful, and doesn't necessarily convey one culture superior to the other, and tries its best to avoid stereotypes. 
The book has been adapted to film six times, and it has inspired many more films, television series, and other works of literature. Alan Quatermain appears in a number of other books by Haggard, and has been borrowed by or inspired a number of other writers and filmmakers, including my first brush with the character, the unfortunate film The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, with Sean Connery as the Great Hunter, who frankly did a great job in an otherwise mediocre film. As for this meat, well, this is the part I always struggle with. It's a rollicking plot, but there's not really such thing as a rollicking meat now, is there? I can't just go on a treasure hunt and serve diamonds on a sandwich, and I don't want to cop out just because it's bloody and serve another goddamn steak. Part of me wants to say snakes with a glittering marination. A big part of me. Unlike too many authors, in my opinion, Hagger doesn't fritter away time describing food. The food can be used well to paint a scene, convey a character or the world, or even just the emotion of the gathering. But too often is it used simply for needless eloquence. I'm looking at you, George R. R. Martin. Unfortunately for me, however, that means the plot has no staple meal for me to rely on other than a milk-based medicine used to help Captain Good and broth for the warriors too weary to eat after battle. So, despite practicality, I've decided to indeed settle on the snake. That's snake, not steak. Other than the obvious mark it bears for the rightful king of Coquinaland, and as a symbol of justice, the snake is also effectively describing the duality prevalent in the whole story, such as when the servant becomes in truth a king, and the treasure room which nigh becomes a tomb, and, my favourite, being how the lush lands of Coquinaland are at first lands of riches, but it becomes clear that it is in fact a land of corruption and moral bankruptcy ruled by Twala and Gagul. To mark the bejeweled nature of the story's goal, I declare the snake to be marinated in a, well, I don't know. Google refused to tell me how to do a good marinated snake. Let me live my life, Google. Well, in any case, Kiotis, I hope the snake is succulent and not poisonous and makes sure it's dead before cooking. Apparently this lady had been pickling a snake in wine for three months before the snake dropped the con and bit her sending her to the hospital. Now, I ain't biblical, but hot damn did the snake earn its rep. I darest not ask my new friends around the campfire what they thought of my telling of the tale, or if they had any opinions on marinating snake, for they had gone deathly quiet, with snake-like eyes bearing their glares as if they were fangs. I asked in Zulu, because I can speak Zulu and you can't disprove it, if they had enjoyed the tale of the hero Alan Quatermain and his friends restoring the rightful King Ignosi to the throne. Turns out, no, they did not enjoy it, as I obviously should have picked up. They were the exiled remnants of those still loyal to King Twala and Gagul, which, frankly, was a bit of a bummer. I put down my bowl, they picked up their spears. Into the woods and into the cheese. Save me, Alan Quatermain! An analysis of Alan Quatermain, who is... I hope on his way because I am in truly horrible pursuit from way too many fit practiced hunters. Alan Quatermain is an elephant hunter, which frankly scores no points, but he's a good protagonist because he is also an erstwhile adventurer. When he is asked to aid Sir Henry Curtis and Captain John Good in finding Sir Henry's brother Neville and the legendary minds of King Solomon, truth be told, in spite of the inherent danger of the expedition, he is more than on board because it seems he has a bona fide death wish that really propels the story forward. Wowee, Quartermain. Quartermain gives his age as 55 at the beginning of the narrative, indi indicating that he has survived much longer than the average elephant hunter, who evidently expects to live about five years in the dangerous profession. Good karma, I'd say. Now some of you Kyotis may wonder, but old Maddie, was not Hemingway a big game hunter? He was, and in spite of being from a different time, this is a trait that can't be ignored. Though it should be noted, he also became an African wildlife preservationist in his later years, as the populations of these animals came into issue. But I will report, if anything is a mitigating factor on Hemingway's behalf, he never hunted elephants, as he admired them too much. But back to the old hunter. Quartermain became the communicator for his English friends among the Kulkwanas, and is in many ways fulfilling a priestly role when they make themselves out to be divinities fallen from the stars. Quartermain has no qualms about playing upon the superstitious nature of the Kukwanas if it will give the men any advantage as they are highly outnumbered in potentially enemy territory if the Kukwanas at any time turn on them. At heart, this shows him to be a good old-fashioned opportunist and perhaps more pressingly, a practical pragmatist. It should also be noted that King Twana is not convinced by this ruse, 
showing at least a little bit on Haggard's part that he recognised that Zulu communities did not have an inferior intellect simply because they were cut off from Western civilization. Like any humble swashbuckler, Quartermain claims to be a coward, but his actions demonstrate his bravery. He is a pessimist, who thinks himself a realist, but he is not afraid to undertake dangerous deeds should he deem them necessary. Personally, I'd even argue him akin to Rick from Casablanca, a tragic secret sentimentalist cocooned in a cynical shell. For all his negativity, Quartermain becomes Ignosi's most trusted advisor among the white men. And finally, it is also Quartermain who was the real MVP, as despite his fatalism, he keeps his head long enough to grab a handful of diamonds as the men seek to escape the sealed treasure chamber. What a hero! I yelled as I ran through the forest pursued by the disciples of Gagool. I shouldn't say that so loud, should I? Oh my god, is that the bear coming from the west? Quartermain's fellow Englishmen and protagonists, Sir Henry Curtis and Captain Good, are a delightful back-to-back double act against the world. Our other hero, Ignosi, is really a hero of another story altogether, so we won't focus on him. Sir Henry Curtis is a broad-chested, tall and blonde-haired and bearded Siegfried figure of heroism, bravery and romance, even going so far as to not want the treasure and only to find his brother. Meanwhile, Captain Good is the main instigator for the treasure hunt itself, and represents the more fastidious of all Englishmen, highly vain and prone to foppish embarrassment, being a prime comic foil and offsider for his friends, to which he is deeply loyal. All in all, this is not an overly complicated story as wonderful as it is, and it stands to reason that his trio of heroes are your old-fashioned kind of English heroes. Colonial in belief, unfortunately, but properly brave, and in this story, respectful of the journey and the people they meet throughout. Except for the guy they decapitated, of course. I award, yes, award I say, these characters the honour of Old English Cheese. Because obviously, even though besides Quartermain, Gagool is my favourite character in the story, I truly fear analysing her character to turn into Cheese, as this would more or less be absolutely toxic for us. And, alas, rations are sparse on this island, Kyotis, especially now that I've got to be constantly on the move to avoid my growing list of enemies, now including a hunting tribe and a gun-toting bear. We shall deal the coup de grace to this much protracted expedition, dear friends, with the themes of H. Ryder Haggard's King Solomon's Mines. Here we are, the source of everything, the source, the themes. Theme number one, imperialism. I really am not a fan of imperialism, though I am a fan of this story. That's mainly because of the world this book creates, and the way the characters all propel the rollicking adventure through this world. While I have said that this is a story not quite to the extent of Kipling in terms of wrongly idolising British imperialism, which I shall get to, it is absolutely there. The fact of imperialism, particularly British imperialism, is assumed to be the natural state of the world in King Solomon's minds. Underlying much of Quartermain's narrative is the assumption that British and European progress necessitates colonisation of more primitive parts of the world, such as Africa. Quartermain's attitude towards Kafirs, Zulus, and specific non-European characters, particularly Umbopa slash Ignosi, demonstrates the prevailing attitude of European superiority over the uncivilized non-whites. The dangers of imperialism are noted as well, however. Upon gaining the throne, Ignosi almost immediately sets up an isolationist foreign policy, in which no white man, with the exception of his three friends and benefactors, will ever be allowed in Kukwana land. He says he will turn them back. If they come in large groups, he will push them away. And if they arrive in an army, he will fight them. Ignosi does not want the European vices of violence, in terms of firearms, drunkenness, and greed to infiltrate his land. Fair cop. Haggard here depicts a very level-headed examination of the harmful side of imperialism, the effect it has upon those people who are being colonised, in terms that are somewhat advanced for his day. His experiences in Africa have certainly made him more aware of the effects that Britain's foreign policy is having upon other cultures, which is progress for the late 19th century. Moving on. With all this being said, and with Haggard's efforts as mentioned, it really can't be danced around any longer. H. Ryder Haggard was racist. While I recommend this story in particular for its prose, story, and characters, and don't believe this one to be particularly controversial, the author himself was that kind of old-timey Englishman who believed in the intellectual superiority of the white race, especially under the British flag. Like many of his Victorian contemporaries, Ryder Haggard, and I quote, 
proceeds on the assumption that whites are naturally superior to blacks, and that Britain's imperial extensions into Africa are a noble, civilizing enterprise. Yes, I know it's shite. So why did I read this book by such an author? Well, above all, Haggard wrote earnestly from the heart, and thus his heart's understanding. While intellectually among his English peers he may have been a racist tosser, he was advanced for his time in that he wrote many novels where Africans were portrayed in a comparatively realistic light, to the best of his heart's understanding and respect. In King Solomon's minds, the representation of Umbopa, who was based on an actual warrior, and the Kukwanas drew upon Haggard's knowledge and understanding of the Zulus, whom he knew personally. As a result, I would still argue that this book is a worthwhile and entertaining read, just bearing the context of the author's terrible misconceptions at the back of the mind, and also remembering that the best stories, wherever they come from, are the ones that are written from the heart, ideally those hearts being good hearts. Finally, I will say that this is your common treasure hunting tale that emphasizes the importance of history and knowledge, the all-consuming dangers, both mental and physical, of pursuing material wealth, and that this, again, unfortunately, is a male-orientated adventure tale, highlighting traditional gender roles of adventurous hunters and warriors for males, with the women as caregivers and nurturers, all while Gagool represents twisted femininity, in essence, a woman with knowledge and authority who ends up murdering the ideal female figure, Fulata. I'll admit that this is a big yikes, but remember, read a story for what it is, not what you want it to be. So with this spicy yikes factor, along with the dangerous nature of treasure hunting, and with the unfortunate dominance of English imperialism, along with the importance of learning, perhaps learning from your mistakes, I have chosen a habanero hot sauce, but more specifically, if you want to go so far, a British habanero hot sauce, colonialism, wave the little flag, which, like the diamonds, are a rare treasure. There is one that I found that's in an appropriate skull bottle called Bloody Hell Hot Sauce, and that, Kyotis, is the official sauce for our themes this mighty fine day. The new dawn is rising, and I find that I have only sustained two spears in each leg, like an Ace Ventura 2, when nature calls, which, considering, is a damn appropriate reference for me to make. I'm bleeding out, and need to eat this sandwich lickety-split before my spirit splits asunder, so let us recap our sandwich before sprinkling on the seasoning and final notes of this episode. For the bread of the life of the author, we have English cottage bread. History. English. And a bit of a treasure hunt to find these days. For the meat of the story, hopefully not poisonous and well-marinated snake meat. Insert phallic joke here, if you must. For the cheese of the characters, Old English. I mean, one way or another, the heroic trio are each a perception of the classic English image. The brave and rational explorer, the heroic and idealist knight on a noble quest, and the foppish yet loyal friend. For the sauce, a preferably British habanero sauce. Do not overdo it, just a dash to hopefully complement the friggin' snake meat. And my final thoughts. The imperialism aside, this is a fine adventure tale of daring dude with well-written imagery, dialogue, and characters that set the groundwork for some of my favourite tales of all time, such as Indiana Jones and Atlantis the Lost City, and I would indeed say Haggard won his wager and wrote an equally entertaining story compared to Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, which is a better story, but its prose slows it down compared to here, and in King Solomon's minds, there is yet, arguably, even more creativity. Thus, before I go to sleep, high in this tree on the other side of this island, which seems to have no Italian vineyards or really civilization, I shall let fall a trickle of saffron, a most earthy seasoning with a bold adventurous taste, and often the last bit of treasure needed for many a gourmet meal, and never where you expect it to be. I go to sleep now. The tribe hunting me is nowhere in sight, and I can only hear the distant yells of that gun-toting bear, who I hope my buddy the boss, the bear, will find a railway track leading to it, and they will have an awesome bear battle, and of course the boss will win. But, in any case, I've enjoyed our ride here, and I hope soon I will find some sort of salvation from this damn deserted island. I sincerely hope we shall read again soon, defeat the rifle-packing bear, and find salvation. Looking yonder, even, I dare say I see a hut with a fellow residing in it. I hope it's Tom Hanks. Until next time, my Kiotes, this is Old Maddie of Delicious Word Sandwich. Tune in for our next, now monthly episode, for more tales, eats, and hijinks. Thank you, my Kiotes.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.